We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 30. We're back. Alan's back. And on this episode, we do a deep dive on rock art dating techniques. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. So I am here with the long lost Dr. Alan Garfinkel. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing well. Thanks, Chris, for <laughs> picking me back up. But this is a this is a resurrection Tuesday. So uh, I uh, right. came back from my near death experience with COVID. And here I am again. Can you imagine? <laughs> what, what, a, what a concept. I know, I know. So you've been out for a while, and then while you were out, not only did your your body get hit by a disease, but it sounds like your microphone got hit by something too. So we're trying to troubleshoot through that and, and working with your substandard computer microphone, but we'll we'll get you sounding like a professional soon. That is correct. So we will right. troubleshoot it and get it done. But we apologize. <laughs> At least we're moving in the right direction. Correct. That's right. That's right. Uh, I was, I some- was, yeah, I say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You can eat the That's elephant right. in small small bites. If you don't, it'll choke you to death. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So let's just jump right into some rock art then. So uh, in right. December, we had a few episodes where we covered a lot of broad topics relating to rock art, a lot of individual things, types, dating, all kinds of stuff. So now we're going to take over 
you know, a series of episodes interspersed with uh, some more interviews, we're going to take some of those concepts and talk about them a little more closely. And the one we're going to focus on today is dating. So let's just start right off with why is rock, rock art so difficult to date? Why is this such a hard thing to date? Rock art has always been a stepchild to the uh, conventional discipline of archaeology. And why was that is that they didn't know what to do with it. The rock art is a kind of data set that you can't collect and bring back to your laboratory and analyze it. It's part of the landscape. And Mm -hmm. by being immovable and also being part of the landscape, it also defies a lot of conventional means of dating. The most popular dating method, of course, is radiocarbon dating. And what that simply requires is something that's organic, that is found within the context of when you've excavated. Typically it's charcoal, sometimes it's shell, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's bone or wood or what have you. But we don't have any of those kinds of attributes, those conventional ways of trying to date rock art are, are sometimes used, but rarely so. And the reason being is for most rock art, if it's a rock drawing, what we call a petroglyph, that's pecked on a boulder, typically of basalt or sandstone, you don't have anything organic per se to work with that could be seen as synchronous, meaning at the same time contemporaneous as the production. So you're stuck. Right. Right. Now, over the course of of many years of study, there's been some workarounds. The way we work around this sometimes is subject matter. So sometimes when you're looking at these images, the native people help you and they may have included within their pictures something that we know dates to a particular period. Oh, yeah. If we're over in the old world, if you're looking in Egypt or somewhere else, you might have chariots or you might have oxen Hmm. or you might have megafauna that is depicted. Well, we do know when megafauna existed, meaning these large, huge animals such as mammoths and uh, some of those huge bison and other animals that were depicted. But in North America, there wasn't any writing per se. These were pre-writing societies that often didn't use uh, any sort of conventionalized script. And so Mm. we're dealing with pictures that don't have images that we can uh, easily access. Now, that being said, the caveat is uh, they do depict hot models. Those are dart and dart throwers. And they do depict bow bow and arrow. So since we know when the hot model and the dart was used, that can give us a fairly gross generalization that if they're depicting those kinds of implements, they're 2,000 years of age or older. So that helps us. Yeah. And and that's one thing I want to mention too, because you said 2,000 years or older. So we can look at a series of of rock drawings to, to encompass everything. 
and really get bookended dates, right? Because we can say, right. well, we know this thing it was extinct here. And then we also know this technology didn't start until here. So we can use those two dates if we have those two things represented and say, can't be older than this and can't really be younger than this because right. of these things right here, right? Uh, as long as we can associate all the same drawings with the same like yeah. event or time period. So right. that's so, important to note. But you're talking about a very long time period. If you're talking about the rock art that I'm familiar with, it can be from 2000 to 13,000 years old. <laughs> right. Right. Or it can be from 2000 years old to the historic era. So that doesn't mm -hmm. help us help us that much. Well, the, yeah. the, other th the other thing we can do is we can look at the rock art and we can begin to examine it from a standpoint of what we call superimposition. Mm. Just like when we excavate, we look for the stratigraphy. Well, the stratigraphy on rock art has to do with the superimposition of images overlaying one and another. Right. So in many instances, for whatever reason, it appears that native people uh, saw the superimposition of one style or one culture's images upon that of, as another as not perhaps eradicating or in any way minimizing those earlier drawings, but in fact, perhaps embellishing or enhancing them. Perhaps mm -hmm. it was a way of venerating those earlier drawings and placing your images upon them. It was the image, but it was the rock and the place and the landscape itself that was speaking to these native people and was alive. I think last time we talked about this, if one understands native religion, native cosmology, the understanding of, of the uh, natural world by indigenous people, everything, both the, the natural and the things we would call not unnatural, but those things that perhaps we feel uh, are not sentient, not alive, not, not things that we would consider having a, a life force in them, mm -hmm. native people do. So the water, the trees, the rocks, every single thing about the earth and what's on the earth is considered to be alive. Yeah. And so that perspective is intertwined, interfingered, has a relationship where you find the rock art and how it is expressed and understood by native people. So if you're dating something, I guess you should know that. So if you're if you see super superimposed one style of rock art and another, at least you can say that, well, those pictures that are underlain on those more recent ones are older. If you begin to sort that out across the board and have a large enough inventory of those images, sometimes you can then begin to do what we call seriation. Hmm. Seriation is a process whereby we understand that when something new is introduced, it begins to be accepted slowly. It picks up speed and peaks and then wanes through time. Right. So if you look at, for instance, styles of cars, you can tell that a car is older because it doesn't have the same kinds of lines. It doesn't have, hmm. it doesn't, doesn't have the fins. It doesn't, doesn't have an old style look to it. And the newer newer cars might be sleeker or might be uh, more uh, finely detailed. 
Right. So the same thing happens in rock art. But you can't assume that the more elaborate or the more finely done renderings are more recent because sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes the right. early earlier rock art is more embellished, more finely rendered, more elaborate, and but then you can begin to see patterns. So those patterns give us information, give us indicators of perhaps their age, and then we have to identify what style or what cultural tradition. And you end up doing a typology. A typology is you classify the imagery by the subject matter. Sometimes right. there are, are decorated animal-human figures, and these might be the predominant elements within the inventory of the rock art. Well, that might be replaced by hunters with bows and arrows. There might be an earlier style for rendering a certain kind of animal, and then it might seem to be more elaborated over time. Okay. Well, this is a good point. Let's take a quick break. We're going to have a slightly shorter episode this time around, but uh, as we're getting back into the swing of things, but let's take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to talk about that subject matter again, because you made me think about some rock art around the world. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. All right, welcome back to episode 30 of the Rock Art Podcast. And we're getting back into this thing. So I wanted to ask you, because you were talking about subject matter, and it made me think of some things that some of our more savvy rock art aficionado listeners might be thinking of. When you look at North American rock art, a lot of the earlier styles seem to be rectilinear or curvilinear type styles, which means, you know, shapes, basically, for lack yes. of a better way to say that, like things that we wouldn't normally see as, say, animals and humans and stuff like that, but more spirals and squiggles and lines and stuff like that. And and the earliest rock art in the Americas is, you know, 10 to 15,000 years old. So, but then you go over to Europe and you can see pictographs. You go to Australia and you can see pictographs that are 20 to 30 or 40,000 years old of animals and other things like that. So why do we think that there's such a difference in subject matter? I know my time is up right now. I just heard the buzzer. We're recording from home, folks. Welcome to COVID times. So I can hear all that. But why do we think that the early rock art here in the Americas was so what we would call abstract, even though it meant something to them, whereas the rock art over in Europe and the, and really the rest of the world 
is much more developed. Do we do we have any ideas around that from a subject matter standpoint? Well, I have, I have to tell you, I've thought about that question long and hard over the course of yeah. my professional career. There's a book that just came out about that entire subject, about understanding this earliest abstract rock art. And the book goes for about 350 pages, let's say. <laughs> it, it doesn't answer that question either. And it, <laughs> it, it, it avoids it completely. And right. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't understand why. And it is odd. There's a lot of, I think there's some mysteries in archaeology. I think that's one of them. Another thing that's mysterious about, about sort of the prehistory of North America is it kind of appears all of a sudden there's an explosion of sort of this uh, Clovis or fluted expression that occurs throughout North and South America almost simultaneously. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have any predecessors. It kind of appears just, you know, autochthonous without any predecessor, without any previous history. So I don't know. I wish I had an answer, but I don't. I know. And one of the things I remember from probably college or, or some reading, and I don't think a lot of people subscribe to this realistically, but I did hear about this in academic settings, but people would always say, oh, well, the earlier rock art styles, the the shapes and things like that, that aren't defined as like animals and humans and stuff represents an earlier cognitive development. But I humans mm. 15,000 years ago in North America were the same as humans in Europe at the same time, developmentally, right? Evolutionarily. There's no difference in the humans that were there. No, there really wasn't. And to see that tremendously artistic, realistic, representational, unbelievably beautiful rock art that's associated with 30, 40,000 years ago is, is difficult to understand because actually the rock art that we see that is more recent from an artistic standpoint, probably never met that same quality, that same vivacity, that same sort of dynamism that you see. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. So, well, it's a question we may never have an answer to, I suppose. Uh, it's just one of those things. Maybe it's cultural. I don't know. What, Like, for example, you know, we don't even know what the real heritages of the people that came to North America. I mean, there's lots of theories. Obviously, there's Chinese ancestry. There's thoughts of South America being populated by people, in some cases, from even the Pacific Islands, right? I've heard that before, too. So, you know, having those rock art styles come with them through time, you'd think would be a thing. But who knows where that came from? So, and, and also if they came, I don't know how much rock art is in like Alaska and coming up through there when they were coming through, say the, you know, ice-free corridor down through North America or coming across the Bering Land Bridge and stuff like that. A lot of icy areas. I don't know how much rock art they were doing. And if it took them thousands of years to make that crossing from many, many generations, maybe they kind of forgot how to do rock art and forgot how to do stuff <laughs> and then got back down here and started making shapes on our fun rocks down here. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, who, who knows? It's, it's a tough one. But the earliest rock art, it's sort of an abstract, and it's, it's engraved. It's deeply engraved. Certainly in the desert west it is. And it's very mm -hmm. unique. It's one that's almost sculptural in its, its construction. And it appears to have been intently ensconced upon these rocks with a lot of strength and a lot of form and a lot of morphology. That doesn't occur later. So whatever was done early on 
it appears that what we were talking about was this, you know, this particular expression was done mm-hmm. very early and it was done and in a form that really wasn't done later. Right. All right. Well, let's take a little bit of a deep dive on some of these dating methods then. What are some of the most valid methods of dating rock art? What are some of the go-tos that you use? Really speaking of the Desert West where you work, you know, what kind of stuff would you go to is, you know, we're definitely going to use this on every single site we go to, that kind of thing. But I think one of the most popular means of dating rock art is, as I mentioned, it's subject matter, that you look at what's there and it helps you sort of bracket it as you put benchmarks. The other methods that have been used for pigmented or paintings is if you can get a chip of the pigment or a piece of the, you know, that flaked off, you can try to run it using an AMS radiocarbon dating if they can have some organic in it. I have done that myself and I have looked at red, white, and black. And the red pigment does often have either plant or animal binder. So they were able mm-hmm. to get a date. That date seemed to be reasonable. It's a thousand years old. So the, the critiques of that is that when you're examining paint and it's in an open environment, there could be a yeah. lot of other external forces or external elements that affect that age and would contaminate that particular subject. Okay. What I've done and what, I, what I've used is a whole plethora of different techniques simultaneously to cross-correlate them. So for instance, one thing is you look for what they call single component archaeological sites. You hope that the rock art was done at the same time. Date the site and maybe date the rock art. That's used in the Southwest extensively. You use uh, obsidian hydration dating. What that means is volcanic glass is able to actually diffuse water molecules in it it has a band. You can read that band and its thickness in microns. And if you look at the, the chemistry of that obsidian, the volcanic glass, and then you can date the uh, actual artifacts. So if you have enough volcanic glass artifacts and they're scattered around the particular images, they may relate to the production of that image. I did that myself. I published an article about it. It was a site that was of the same style as that existed in my research area. And I think it dated to about AD 500 or 1600 years ago. And the obsidian seemed to support that age. So we can do that. But you really want to also have other independent means. So you can do obsidian hydration dating. You can also use what they call uh, several experimental means. And there's one that I favor right now, and it's called X-ray fluorescence dating. And what we do is we take a portable XRF machine to a rock art sites, specifically rock drawings, and we examine the chemistry of the rock art itself. So we look at the background and we look at the images itself. So and it's a quantifiable method. It's, it actually measures the trace elements within the rock. And so the chemistry or the production of what's called desert varnish occurs mm-hmm. over time. Desert varnish is an iron manganese coating that you find mainly on basalt, but also on sandstone as well. So, and so when you have that desert varnish and it's pecked away to create the rock art, then you can examine or quantify the background desert varnish versus the desert varnish that's found within the 
cracks or interstices of the rock drawing itself. So you take the background and subtract it from the actual production of the rock art itself, and it gives you a measure of the iron manganese accretion as it's formed. And that, that technique has been uh, experimentally tested in the old world, in the Middle East, where they have writing and subject matter, mm. and they found it has validity. We've also done it on uh, throughout the Great Basin and even into the American Southwest. And I think that in some quarters, they're beginning to have some level of confidence in that particular dating system as well. Is that accretion rate dependent on the environment? So you'd have to have environmental knowledge of weather patterns and things like that through time, climate? Yes, it's on the environment. It's also the slope of the rock. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. actual yeah. dip and strike. And so yeah. it's, it's localized from rock to rock. You, you have to evaluate each particular rock and get that background and then examine the equation and then figure it out. Okay. All right. Well, let's take our final break and we'll come back on the other side of this and wrap up this discussion on dating of rock art back in a minute. Or as I should get you guys back to used to hearing it, we'll catch you on the flip side. (laughs) (laughs) You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to episode 30 of the Rock Art Podcast. And I screwed up Alan's catchphrase. It's catch you on the flip flop. <laughs> I'm, I'm sending it back to you next time, Alan. So this <laughs> that's, that's got it. That's got it. That's right. That's right. So anyway, I was thinking, you know, one of the methods you mentioned was, you know, finding a site with like a single event that you could date that site and therefore date the rock art that's in association with the site. But man, I feel like... I feel like that is incredibly problematic. And I'm thinking about that because, you know, there's some rock art sites around Nevada where it's easily accessible by the public. And every time you go there, I mean, people, volunteers and stuff do a pretty good job of trash cleanup. But let's say they don't, right? Because every time you go there, there's some kind of wrapper or plastic bag or something nearby. And I'm thinking about the archaeologists 500 years from now, after the global apocalypse and all our information and data has been wiped out, we've rebuilt society and now we have archaeologists again. (laughs) And they go to these sites, they don't know anything about rock art because we lost all our previous data and they're trying to figure out this stuff all over again. And they say, well, these must have been made 500 years ago because that's when these artifacts were popular. And that's when these things were made. So what were the people of the early 2000s doing making this rock art? (laughs) So how can we be sure that even a single site, because even Native Americans or wherever you're talking about in the world, would come to something like this and probably see it as something special, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this is something special if you didn't create it yourself. And they may camp out there for a little while and then leave, but have no impact on the rock art whatsoever. So it's it's got to be a really difficult thing. Exactly. Well, that's right. So that most of the sites that you're going to find are going to be long-term sites. So then you have yeah. to have a large enough sample where you have some that were, for whatever reason, they visited it once or mm-hmm. they repetitively visited only to a rather restricted period of time. And the chronologically sensitive artifacts that are there, they could be projectile points. They could be other things as well. And the dating that sure. we have seems to cross correlate and give us a fix. Now, one of the things I did 
in my own research area that helped me tremendously. The uh, artisans were, you know, looked with favor on the researcher who was going to come along hundreds, even thousands of years later. And they depicted the styles of the dark points that they were using during certain periods of time. <laughs> huh. and, we, okay. and we know we know specifically the styles of those points and their ages. And they are yeah. what they call middle, middle archaic. So they date from about 2000 BC to about AD 1. So you've you got a 2,000-year-old period that brackets that. And when you see those depictions with certain styles of rock art that you know either are earlier or later, you can mm -hmm. fix that in time. So I was able to sort the, the styles and changes, the subject matter of the rock art mm. based on the productive points you know, that were represented. And then also the superimposition of those styles. Mm -hmm. And also by their relative patination. That's something I didn't talk about. But desert varnish has a way of growing and getting darker and darker as it ages. And some of the imagery that we see in areas where the basement rock, the bedrock, is either sandstone or basalt You'll see the rock art images that are so faint, you can only see them as the, with glancing light. And those mm -hmm. images are 10, 11, 12,000 years ago. They're very ancient. Yeah. And we know that independently, even using some of these quantitative methods. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that the landscape uh, speaks to you about the chronology as well. Yeah. What do you think about just looking at you know, in order to date rock art, you have to be able to see rock art because <laughs> that, that may be, yes. you know, uh, sometimes, I mean, that made me think about, it used to be a computer program and now it's an app you can download onto your phone. And some of our more, more intense rock art aficionados listening to this podcast may already have this on their phone, but the app called D-Stretch, yeah. which changes color patterns and stuff. So have you have experience with D-Stretch or, or any luck with using it? Yeah. D-Stretch also works on petroglyphs as well as pictographs. And it is surprising. Yeah. Things that are invisible to the naked eye can be seen with D-Stretch because it somehow brings out the reds most intensely. Mm -hmm. And it's a, as you say, it's a game changer because you can go to a rock that you can't see nothing at and you take a picture of yeah. it with D-Stretch and it's covered with paintings. Right. And I don't know how it works, but it, it certainly is an effective way of, of reconstructing or resurrecting the images that one cannot see by the the visible spectrum. Yeah, it's just making me think as an archaeologist, I mean, I've found many of an archaeological site, right, that it might be near boulders or rock outcrops or something like that. And we, of course, look for rock art. But, you know, if we don't find something which you you don't find rock art all the time out in the desert west in Nevada, you might find rock art more often than you would expect. But most of the time we don't find any. But it's making me think if we find a like a really old site with some paleo points on it, you know, stuff that's older than like seven, eight thousand years old, that maybe we should image those rocks anyway uh, that are near this outcrop and de-stretch them and see if anything pops out. Because in the harsh light of the day, it just might not be visible at that point in time, you know, but those rock outcrops were there 8,000 years ago. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly correct. And I'll, yeah. I'll tell you a little anecdotal story. Mike Morado is a very prestigious archaeologist. He wrote a book on sure. the prehistory of California archaeology. And he told me a story 
that he'd gone to a, a site many, many times with many, many mm -hmm. people there in near a reservoir that he was writing up his PhD dissertation. And he'd always uh, looked around for any evidence of habitation. And although they knew there was people that lived there, he didn't see any evidence of any structures. Well, one day it was cloudy and the, the sun was coming at a glancing lighting and he saw hundreds of house pits <laughs> all <laughs> over the site that he'd never seen Jeez. before. And I've seen the same yeah. thing with rock art. I've come to the same rock art site dozens of times, literally over the course of my life, probably a decade. And I get there at the right time of day with clouds and the sun coming up and the place is covered with rock art that I couldn't see before. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard of on, you know, CRM cultural resource management projects where, you know, you get done with the survey, you're working for some company and then you hear months later or something like that, that when they had bulldozers out there and they were doing stuff, something was discovered. And then the survey crew gets yelled at for not finding whatever was discovered. And it's like, man, sometimes, sometimes it could have just been time of day and you couldn't see what was there, right? It was just invisible. It's too old too you know, reclaimed by the landscape and it was just invisible. And we don't often have the resources or the time to do things like LIDAR and de-stretch on rocks and all the other stuff that we should do that help improve our vision as humans. Cause our vision's not great when it comes to seeing stuff like that. And we need those other techniques to, to bring that stuff to light. Two stories. Maybe only time for one story. Archaeologist doing work in the Eastern Mojave desert of California. Mm -hmm. And he keeps finding what he thinks is features all over the Mojave desert, especially on what they call desert pavement. Desert pavement is where the environmental factors have caused the ground to be solid rock. And it's all varnished. It's almost as though someone painted it. It's like a mosaic of intersecting stones. Yeah, it's crazy. And on that desert pavement, he sees these little pebble mounds. So <laughs> he began to see more and more of them, 50, 100. And he began to take aerial photos of them. And they're all over the desert. And... <laughs> People had done surveys in that area and always ignored them and said they're historic and they're mining features or this or that. Well, he didn't believe them. And as he began to research them, he found out that they're all over the world. They're in the Negev Desert. And they found that those are water features that are very, very ancient and that native people understood how to effectively capture rainwater and retain it into the soil on these desert water features. Hmm. And so those little pebble mounds somehow affect the rain and the movement of the water and the precipitation. So it goes into the ground and enhances both the vegetation and its proliferation. And, inf and that would affect the amount of harvesting that could be done and seeds and the bulbs, etc. And would also provide forage for game. Hmm. And they exist, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere. And people haven't studied them to any great extent, certainly in California. Right. Wow, that's incredible. It really is amazing the different things that you just learn throughout your career. And then you go out and you see a landscape entirely differently than you saw it a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, because of what you learned. And, you know, 
that's something you just have to accept as a scientist too, because you're constantly learning things and you can't beat yourself up over. Cause I, I think back to some of the first projects I was on and I'm like, man, what did I miss? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and what am I missing now? <laughs> and did you ever go back and read some of your earlier reports? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I've read some, yeah, totally. Yeah. There's definitely room for improvement. Yeah. Well, this was wonderful. I really appreciate us getting back in the swing of things. And I have a gentleman coming next week to uh, speak to us. And he's one of the experts on the Barrier Canyon rock art style Great. of Utah. And I think that'll be a nice interview. So looking forward to it. Outstanding. All right. Well, looking forward to that. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back next week and we'll put Alan back in the driver's seat and I'm going to take my spot behind the computer screen and uh, we're going to get back into the swing of things. So, Alan, glad to have you back. Glad to hear you're healthy and, and back into it. And we will, as Alan said, be back with some more great interviews next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, all your listeners in Rock Hard Podcast land. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.